Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel so Welcome listeners to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me, hopefully not using Patreon funds to purchase the next great video game out there, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. <laughs> I don't even know how to react to that. I don't know if I should be offended that you think that could possibly be a thing or if you're trying to put something so far-fetched. Because I feel like that's not outside the scope of believability, but it, I have not done that yet. We we are above reproach on this show. <laughs> I mean, we value our patrons and our listeners equally, and we're grateful for those that contribute to the show in any way, shape, or form, and we do not do that to your funds, patrons. We uh, we use them for good and... Uh, movie-related. Yeah, and movie-related, right? <laughs> Podcast movie-related. Yes, yes. Things, yes. <laughs> well, this week we decided, since we are home from the box office, see what I did there? Yeah. To check out the uh, HBO original movie, Bad Education, starring Hugh Jackman, Allison Janney, and Ray Romano, among others. Uh, it tells the story of the largest embezzlement scheme ever to target an American school district, which found students in Roslyn, New York, robbed of over $10 million. You heard me, $10 million in funds. Uh, it is a true story, surprisingly, and it's one that I'm definitely excited to talk about. Obviously, when anything has Hugh Jackman in the uh, casting, I'm always excited to talk about that, but... We'll go ahead and start with one-word takeaways. Aaron, why don't you start us off? Yeah, my one-word takeaway for this one is going to be deception. Because if nothing else, stories like the one that is told in this film, I think, are really important because they help remind us that people are simply not always what they seem or what we believe them to be. And I think one of the biggest strengths of Bad Education is how well it quickly establishes the characters as good people before it starts pulling the rug out from under that foundation and then showing us how deceptive they've all been. So essentially, the movie is deceiving us as well as part of its narrative. And it doesn't have to be big and flashy because, you know, deception and deceiving others is usually a very quiet affair when done effectively. And the way in which Frank and Pam and others are deceiving their coworkers and their family and their friends is as equally disgusting as it is convincing. And the film, for me, shows how well, I guess not how well, but it shows that an addictive, how addictive deception can become for someone, how it can begin to take over your life when it. You know, it's like telling a little white lie, Patrick. One begets another, and then it grows, and it grows. And the next thing you know, you've made history for the biggest school district embezzlement scheme in history. Yeah, and it's surprising because I think a lot of that has to do with my one-word takeaway, and that's influence. Not just the influence that Frank Tassone had on those that he worked with, but over the students. Early on, as you mentioned, we get a picture painted for us of these characters that seem to genuinely care about their jobs. They care about the school district and what it is that is going on. And it's that influence that I think leads to deception, not only to the school district and to the students, but also to the characters themselves. And I'm saying characters, obviously, because we're talking about a biopic. So don't think that I'm not talking about real people, but I think that the influence extended to myself as well. I felt convinced that Frank Tassone was this person that he was and Pam was this person that she was. And as the movie progresses, as the story progresses, you start to realize, wow, not quite what I thought. And in a different kind of way, not a way that feels sleazy, not a way that feels gross in some capacity, one that feels understandable. And that's what surprised me the most, Aaron, was walking away from the story feeling a little bit sympathetic towards some of these characters. And uh, we'll get into that here shortly. So consider this your spoiler warning audience. If you haven't seen this, it's on HBO right now. It's one of those movies that's gotten a lot of great buzz, and rightly so. 
Don't know if it's going to be one of these Oscar contenders at all. <laughs> 2020 is going to probably be up in the air with regard to the movies that are going to make the cut there. But regardless, check this out before joining us further as we go deep dive into this spoilerific conversation. So to begin the conversation, Aaron, what I want to do is first ask, did you know about this event before going in or did you read up on it before or did you actually go in blind? And regardless of what you did, how did that affect your movie experience? Yeah, I knew nothing about this at all. And I learned it was a true story when I heard the movie. I actually didn't know about the movie even existing. So I didn't know that it came out at TIFF last year and then it was purchased by HBO. So the first time I'd even heard of it was when it got released and people started talking about it. I've been a little bit out of my normal movie plugged in nature the last couple months. But even so, this kind of was a big surprise. And so... I didn't know about the history of the actual story and I didn't know the movie existed. And when I did learn about it and people were talking and giving it pretty high praise, I went and figured out what the plot was, but the plot was very simple, you know, school district embezzlement, biggest one in history. And that's about all you get. I didn't know where the school district was. I didn't know the circumstances around it or any of that stuff. And I think that it was definitely the right choice for me because while knowing a true story doesn't always hinder my experience, the way in which this story was told, in my opinion, it is not particularly exciting. And without the additional discovery piece for me of learning what is going to happen and it being a mystery, I think it might have been a, been a lot less enjoyable if I was just watching something I knew how it ended, I knew what it was going to happen, and then I was you know, watching a recount of it. Whereas by contrast, if I know how a story is going to play out already, I want to see that jazzed up and made interesting a la The Social Network. I want energy, and I want to be entertained while I get told that story that I'm already familiar with. And this film doesn't have a lot of that, so... I think not knowing it actually helped me like the movie more. I would agree. And it reminds me a little bit of my experience watching The Last Dance with my wife. We're going to the episodic documentary. We know what the result is. And this, the documentary itself is being told in a nonlinear format. So you were walking through this last season with Michael Jordan and the Bulls. And there are flashbacks to earlier parts of the careers of some of these players and coaches and whatnot. And in a similar way, you look at a movie like this and you know a little bit about it. Like I wasn't an avid Bulls fan, but I knew that they won six titles. So for me, watching the journey was equally as important as knowing the destination. The destination itself wasn't the point. It isn't the point. It's how did we get here? What did they experience along the way? Not knowing anything about this event you got kind of a double whammy of entertainment value because you knew embezzlement was involved, but I didn't know that it was Frank and Pam. I didn't know that Frank was doing his own thing apart from what Pam was doing for different reasons. And you're right. This is a very quiet kind of crime movie. There's not a lot of action in it. There aren't massive chase sequences. It really plays out like an article in a paper. Here are the events as they took place. And that's difficult as a director, as a screenwriter, because you want to make sure that your audience stays entertained. And I think ignorance is bliss in this regard, in being able to experience the whole thing and then to go back to the original source, which was, I think, in the Esquire magazine or New Yorker, one of the two. That's all it was, was an article. Similar to A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, loosely based on an article and an author in his life and connected with Fred Rogers, the interest comes from the little details about an event in history. We didn't need to know a lot about Frank and where he came from. We're just kind of put into the story. He's a superintendent. He's got the number four school district in the country. And we quickly establish that he wants to be the best, that he wants this district to be number one in the entire country. He values the prestige. He values the students. He values the success of the district. And that pressure, I think, Aaron, 
is what drives a lot of what the story is trying to tell. Being the best, or at least part of the best, seems to be that driving force. And I wanted to know what makes that so important for not only the students, obviously, but the teachers and the administrators that are connected to this Rosalind School District. Yeah, he definitely wants to be the best. I love the opening scene. I, I think that the beginning of this film, and I'd say maybe the first act where it's introducing us to the characters and, like I said, kind of deceiving us into thinking that they're really great people, just as the school district believes they are, it does a really great job of doing all of that. There's that first moment with Frank where he walks into the office that morning and he sees the number four balloons and he's like, no, get these out. Like, I want this to be number one. And you're like, okay, now I know where this guy's head's at, right? But I think we're so used to seeing that character who acts that way, frankly, be a dick is is how I would put it. Like that, that character is going to, when the mom comes in with the son and Mm -hmm. wants a piece of Frank's time, that character is going to be rude and standoffish or not want to step down from his high pedestal to talk to the little people, right? But that's not Frank. He actually engages with people. And and I like that about him. Um, And so I, you know, it's a really cool way of establishing how driven he is, but yet seemingly how he's doing it while also caring about his community. Um, I think that the obvious answer to this question is the reason that they all are driven for this success is embroiled in money and status. And that goes for students being able to get into more prestigious colleges. Uh, it goes for local business owners who want to say thank you because the property value has gone up in the neighborhood because the schools are good. And that's a very, very, I mean, this is a real movie. This is a biopic. This is true statement. This is how it works, right? This is what you learn about as well. When you start looking into race relations in the country and you start realizing like the history of how zoning worked and how neighborhoods get segregated to the point where a school system, when people tell you that schools are all equal, that this is what we're talking about when we say that's not the case. Because you have a traditionally white area with white schools. They may not be embezzling money, but the way that that school is able to achieve status is going to funnel money into that neighborhood, which raises property value, which brings more money in, which makes businesses thrive, which takes money away from maybe neighboring neighborhoods, for uh, I guess a confusing word, where those become poorer. Those school districts do not have the resources that the school district that is thriving has. It's a really sticky situation. And so we see that sort of play out here. So why wouldn't you want that? I mean, everybody wants that. I think that's fair. I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting that, to be honest with you, to want to have your school district be represented among the nation's best, to be considered to have the highest test scores, um, to have the best teachers, etc. I think that those are good things. Uh, it's all about like, what's the end result of that? Is the, is the driving fire behind these characters, these, these people that they want to be known as having those things or that they want the success of, of, they want that for the children, right? Do they want to have their name in the headline as high test scores? Or do they care that that certain child has good test scores and therefore that child is going to go on and be successful in that child's life? I actually think that they care about both. And you mentioned empathy. There is some empathy for the devil in this story. There really is. Because we see it through and through, maybe not with Pam so much. I think Pam is the more like, mm, little little less uh, empathy for her. But like definitely with Frank, like, you know, there's an element there where he's talking with kids throughout this movie and you really do get the sense that he cares. Like he remembers all of their names. He remembers where they went to college. Uh, he is excited about that. He's genuinely disappointed when he meets Kyle and finds out like he didn't go on to Dartmouth and didn't go on to do these dreamy things that, that he thought that he was creating this school district in order to allow these kids to flourish. Um, you know, the, the money, obviously, is the big other reason, because they want the things. P- 
Pam, once we finally learn the depth of her deception, it's millions upon millions of dollars. It's multiple houses. It's jet skis. It's flights overseas. It's vacations. It's electronics galore. Like, it is crazy how much money this woman had sucked out of the school district for this other life, right? And of course, she wants to justify it by telling her family, like, I want to provide these things to you, which is a very common thing for people to use as an excuse. Uh, and I, you know, and then we find out, you know, Frank's been doing similar things from whether it be small charges all the way up to first class tickets for him and his boyfriend, you know, to fly and stuff. And I think ultimately it's a story about how when we're Americans, it feels very easy to justify our success to ourselves. We are constantly bombarded with the idea that this is the land of opportunity and you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get and that it's justified because you put in the work and therefore you are entitled to these things that you don't necessarily have to have or have to earn your good fortune that it can it can just happen and therefore you are now entitled to that and, and entitled for it to keep going and for that lifestyle to continue once you've had it or tasted it. And we will honestly do, we see this over and over in American history. People will do whatever it takes to keep everything in the right place and not have to take a step back in their lives. To be honest with you, and I don't want to go off on too big of a tangent here, but it reminds me of what's kind of going on right now with coronavirus. We're in a country with a situation where many people are facing extreme extreme economic hardships. And they're challenged. Some are wondering if their businesses are going to be able to ever come back. Some are wondering how they're going to end up, you know, sustaining their families when they're making a little less money on unemployment than they might have been when they were in the office. What we don't do as a culture in this country is do a good job of going, oh, the circumstances have now changed and I have to adjust. And that's okay. Like that is a normal flow of life. Instead, we get upset. We want to blame. We want to fight to do everything we can to make sure that that status quo stays the same. And God forbid, everybody else is wrong unless my status quo stays the same. But I'm not stepping back. I'm not cutting my subscriptions to whatever the heck I'm subscribing to. I'm not going to move into a smaller house. I'm not going to eat different food. I'm not going to get rid of one of my three cars and make do because I have established the baseline. And that is what happens to these people. That is where that I think this culture got created is these people started to establish more and more of a baseline of what they liked their life being. And so in order to sustain that, how do you do it, Patrick? If you can't, if you're not making the money, you got to take the money. <laughs> That sounds like a political slogan right there. <laughs> Aaron White, 2020. Um, Better yeah, than the one I tried in high school, buddy. That was, <laughs> I tell that story all the time. When I was in junior high, I don't think I've ever told on a podcast, but when I was in junior high, I ran for, I think it was secretary of the student class or something, and I thought I was so clever. And so I made signs one night, and I put them up all over the next day, all over the school. Um and my school was a traditionally African American school. Like it was m probably more minority at the time than, than white, honestly. But my slogan based on my last name was incredibly clever. And it was vote right, vote white, because I'm Aaron White. And that makes so much sense to me, Patrick. And I got beat up, literally beat up. Like I had bruises at the bus stop. My posters got thrown in the trash can and set on fire. And to end this, very brief, terrible story of my history. I did not get elected. Well, that's both sad and <laughs> interesting at the same time. <laughs> I also did not embezzle any student funds. So, well, that's good. There, you know, justify. That's good. A lot of what you have said, I completely agree with. What makes this movie really interesting is that it's not compartmentalizing what you're talking about. That 
one of the one word takeaways that I was thinking about was the word compound as kind of a play on words that you have this school district that essentially acts as a compound where everybody is influencing everybody else. But there's also a compounding nature of this sense of entitlement, this sense of I want to maintain what my dad experienced, what his dad experienced, and I'll do whatever I can. That translates for the students I saw into the sense of pressure. Don't break from the status quo because something will be sacrificed. Things will change. There's this fantastic moment, well, actually two moments between the editor and Rachel, who ends up breaking the story. Early on, the editor takes Rachel's story about the skywalk and changes the headline. But before that, in the conversation, he says, look, you had a good try. Uh, we'll fix it. You're, you're learning. And essentially dismissing it because nobody wants to read that. This is just a school paper. It's a chance for us to get into a good college. It's essentially a means to an end. You don't need to take it that seriously. It's an extracurricular. It's fine. Later on, when she allows him to read her story, he starts freaking out. Not because it's a shock to him necessarily, but because he, he said this specifically, Frank is writing my recommendation letter. His future is in jeopardy because she wants to tell the truth. That moment, I think, epitomized what the attitude of this whole story is trying to show us, and that's, what do you actually care about? On the surface, it may look like there is an altruistic nature that exists with leadership, with students, and this sense of, you know what, we're trying to bring this money in so we can grow the property value so that we can make this place feel safe, make it feel like it's a winner. But in actuality, Aaron, it comes down to, I want to feel safe. I want to make sure that I'm going to get mine. And to a lot of people, Rosin is a means to an end. For the students, it's definitely a means to an end. I would think that if we push this story out 10 years, the folks that graduated are not thinking about where they went to high school. They're thinking about, yep, I went to Brown, I went to Cornell, I went to Harvard. Not by way of a school district that was number four in the country, but you can't not acknowledge that. And I think that the movie does a very good job of showing us that there is a very intoxicating environment that exists here where you get to a place of feeling like you're entitled. And if your rights feel like they're being threatened, you have a right to fight back legally or illegally. There's a fantastic conversation between Frank and uh, Ray Romano's character who's called Big Bob Spicer. Love it. And he talks about how the embezzlement started with a $20 lunch that he said, you know what, I'll just pay it back on Monday. I didn't have my personal card. And he said it just led to this and this and this. And that sounds wrong, but I've had those thoughts too. Like, you know, it's just once, no big deal. But then once leads to another, and then it just gets easier. And I think that when we see that, that kind of culture, that kind of attitude lives in the hearts and minds of probably a lot of the teachers and students because they know that, you know what, if I cheat on this test, it's only one test, but that test is going to get me a higher grade, which will lead to this, which will lead to that. And ultimately, we have a district that may look good, but is really probably just as fake as a lot of other educational institutions. Um, there's a great kind of parable or imagery that Rachel points out when she talks about the skywalk taking so much money to build. And yet when she looks up at the ceiling, she sees water leaking. Like there's all these cosmetic changes that could be done to the school. And yet you're spending huge amounts of money to build this gaudy monstrosity that is the skywalk that apparently everybody wants. <laughs> and it's never really established who the students really want that. All she gets are sound bites from both Frank and Pam. 
And of course, it leads down that path of maybe it didn't cost this much. Maybe they didn't really have this number of contractors. But ultimately, it comes down to a district that's trying to look good instead of actually be good. Frank Tassone is an interesting character, Aaron, and something that surprised me about him was this, what I would consider a subplot of Frank and this affair that he's having with one of his former students, and that's like peppered throughout the story. And I wondered what you thought of this subplot. Did it add to the overall movie experience? Did it feel out of place? Did it feel like it fit right into you? How did you feel walking away from that? Well, I'll tell you, the first reaction I had was surprise. I was caught completely off guard. was not at all expecting the interaction with Kyle, his former student, when he goes to randomly bumps into him in this diner was not expecting it to go the direction it was going. Up until that point, Frank has mentioned at one or two points in the story, I think he's been come on to by the, the lady of the book club already at that point, and he's told her about his wife who's passed away. And, you know, we get these nuggets of information throughout the story that allude to Frank wearing his wedding ring and that his wife has been dead for 30-plus years, and he's not over it. And so I'm buying the story at face value. I'm being, like I said in my one more takeaway, I'm being deceived by Frank. And so this hit me like a ton of bricks and I was like, whoa, what is going on? So at first I actually thought, oh, okay, so Frank is bisexual or he's attracted to this man. And, you know, he also had a wife of 30 years that has passed away and now he's confused or whatever. Like I, I didn't think I, I still bought the wife story up until this point. So it's not until later that we even get another reveal until we get like a double surprise where it's like oh oh wait <laughs> you know he's actually had a partner a male partner for like 30 plus years and no wife at all like it's all been a cover-up he's been living a life of lies forever it goes that far back and so it was very surprising to me both parts of the story um i think it's i have no problem with it because it is it's a stab it's frank's it's who frank was it is a biopic so we're learning who frank the person is and I think it helps to establish that deception again, like that this is a pervasive part of his life and that on the surface and all aspects of his life, whether it be in his work or in his personal life, he is hiding things and he is not living and being a truthful person on the outs. Like no one really is getting like honest, totally full Frank, like clear. And so I think it's important. I also think, that because, again, this is what I would say is a an extremely boring criminal case, frankly. Heh, pun intended. Um, this is about stealing millions of dollars through some paperwork, and somebody had some houses and some PlayStations and some stuff from the Ace Hardware store, and some free dry cleaning or whatever. But, like... Basically, Patrick, it's a boring movie and it's a one hour documentary. There's no movie if you don't put this in there. Like you don't get to the runtime of a movie unless you actually go hard on this Frank's side relationships issues. I just don't think you can get to. There's not enough meat in the story of just the plot of the school district being embezzled, frankly, for, for it to, to hold up. So that's kind of how I read it all. Um, I, I do think. That when it comes to his relationships, it was, again, very telling in a character defining way when we learned that Frank It's where I got some of that empathy for Frank and realizing like he cared about this kid and what happened to him and why he wasn't what was what was he into now and why he why he didn't go on to do the things that he had dreams to do. Uh, and then. He ends up at the end with a moment of which I didn't know whether to be happy for him or what, but like there's this moment at the very end where he's clearly free. He has, he knows they're coming for him. It's a, an intercut in a section with the cops are arresting Pam at this point. And so Frank knows they're going to come for him and he's out with Kyle one last night and they're at this club, a gay club and they're dancing freely 
and he's himself. He's goofy and just terrible on the dance floor. And he it looks to me like for once, Frank is like letting himself be who he probably really is in public. And he's got a minor amount of happiness on him. Like, and it's it's sort of sad because it's like, okay, now you figured out how to be yourself with this guy. And like, this is who you you're okay with you. And now you're going to prison for a dozen years. So pretty bad timing on that, bro. Uh, But that's that's kind of how I felt about it. So it allowed me to have more empathy for him than I would have if we didn't get to know that part of his life. But, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, and I like Raphael Casal. I was glad to see Raphael Casal again. Hadn't seen him since blind spotting. That's the only thing I knew him from. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> With an entirely different dialect, too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, it took me a minute to figure out who he was because yeah. he is not sound like San Francisco Raphael Casal, the beat poet. Yeah, for real. I was like you pretty taken aback, to be honest, by the nature of the relationship. I didn't make out that he was I said make it that's funny um I didn't determine that he was gay until that moment and then it was of course reinforced by this relationship with the domestic partner that he's had for 30 plus years where I struggled Aaron was that I don't know that we got too much of an established relationship with his domestic partner to offset this relationship with Kyle it seemed to me like he was bored with this relationship with his domestic partner and he was just adding to a deception within a deception which makes sense for the story and i think it's consistent but i didn't necessarily have that kind of empathy like you did in fact when we get to that very last scene where he's in prison to contrast that moment in the club where he feels the most free he's now in prison and i felt like he's kind of gotten back into the clutches of his deception because he starts kind of pampering himself, getting himself primped. And then he walks out of a common area in the prison, hearing this newscast, this, um, I guess this press conference that Bob is, is giving talking about how the district has gone to number one. And clearly this is a fantasy. Or is it? It's kind of this mix of like, is he hearing an actual like press conference? Because by the end, it of course goes to what he perceives as his reality. Because it transitions into that really cool moment at the end where he's coming out being acknowledged as being the guy who did this. And then of course the the movie ends at that point. And I'm left going, wow, I feel empathy for Frank. Not because of what you're saying necessarily, but more so because of the fact that I don't think he ever was able to escape fully from the clutches of that persona that he was in. We think prison is an opportunity for rehabilitation and maybe, again, the long-term narrative is his, he finds that. But frankly, at this point, when we, when we look at him and we see how the movie ends, it, it's a little sad. Because it tells us that he is a guy who wants to be successful. He wants to be valued and appreciated. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for him, it's at any cost. So even in prison, he's living out this life of deception. And now he's deceiving himself, even if it's for a few moments. And it does make it sad. It makes it sad that you can't look at that guy and say, is he ever going to be happy? Is he ever going to be completely comfortable in his skin? And I don't feel that he is. I feel like he has those moments like in the club, but I don't feel like he ever fully gets to a place where he's like, okay, I've reconciled who I am. I've reconciled what I've done. At the end of the day, I don't feel like he necessarily is feeling bad about what happened. Well, no, Ginny calls him a sociopath. He's very much, I mean, very clearly is one. She, when he goes to fire her as the business manager, and then she turns around and threatens him because she's like, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell people about Pam's truth then if you're going to fire me. And then everybody starts getting into that situation where everybody's got their secrets and they're trying to protect themselves. And so everything's going up in flames now. And she leaves him a note saying, 
like I'm not the sociopath here or something like that. So he, yeah, he's not normal. Like he is not someone who can just suddenly be different. And that, I think that's why that moment with Kyle is like so powerful to me. Cause it's like for a brief moment in time, you're right. Like he is, and, and it, it's important to have it bookended because it really sells that it is a brief moment. It is not who he is changing to be going forward. He's not in prison and he's like a new guy. Yeah. He's not that guy, but this is what maybe his life could have been if he allowed himself to be honest about who he is and honest in his work dealings as well. After we get the concluding text on the screen about how much money was embezzled and the time that both Frank and Pam spent or would be spending in prison, we get this one little piece of information that says all this basically started from a student being curious and printing it in the school paper. And that that was the moment that it got national news. There's a conversation that Frank has with Rachel before she actually prints it to try to influence her not to do it because of the echo, the vibrate, not vibration, the um, ripple effect that it's going to have on the school. And he says, essentially, if you don't know for sure, don't say a word, which we can interpret as a threat. And of course, she ends up doing it. What surprised me, Aaron, was the fact that it took a school paper. It took a student, I think a junior, maybe a sophomore, I don't know, an undergrad in high school doing her own digging, writing this article for it to actually get at the very least statewide buzz and then eventually leading to the arrest of these two individuals and possibly a few more. What do you think that says about the district, the people that no one actually saw this being done? Well, no one wanted to see this being done, for one thing. But I think that's speculative in nature. I think what we know for a fact is that, at least based fact, I say factually based on the facts of the movie and what it gives us for information. So to separate that from real-life facts, because I don't know, I'm not comparing this to the actual expose, I haven't read it. But the movie shows us that Pam was damn good about covering things up. Essentially, is how it goes. And so was Frank, obviously. I think people are not apt to go digging and look closely at things when success is on the table because we're happy with where we're at. We go digging and look for new specifics when we're not meeting our standards and we need to find a way to get to our standards. But when things are clicking and going well... What's the reason to dig, man? You don't want to change anything. Like you're, you're on fire. So I think that that's just a very, that's a human trait in pretty much every aspect of life. That's how life goes. We don't dig beneath the surface of our relationships and what might be going on in our hearts if everything seems like it's hunky dory on the outside, you know, but, but if it's not hunky dory on the outside, then we want to like get all up in there and find out all the details, right? So. Things are like that in all aspects, and I think that's what we see here. I, this is where I actually feel like the moment you brought up, which was almost my connecting point, um, I had a couple, and that was a close one, where Frank is talking to Big Bob. I can't call him that, man. I, he's not a Big Bob. Like he doesn't Just call him Bob. <laughs> Ray uh, Romano, about how it started, and he's talking about that first accidental charge. He does it for 20 bucks at dinner. And he, and he says, he's, he goes, no one noticed and no one cared. He said, and that turned into a 60 cent bagel. And then it just went from there. And that is so realistic is all I can tell you. Like I have, char I have charges on my credit card right now at work for Starbucks because I accident, I used my work credit card to buy Starbucks for a work event a couple months ago and my card got accidentally like it was the one that got defaulted when I used it or whatever it got defaulted and so I went in to reload my Starbucks card at one point and boom the reload charge went there and I wasn't even thinking about it I just you know clicked through the buttons didn't have any idea until I went in to reconcile my work credit card I did that I have 
over the course of three or four years working at my job, I have charged, I would say, three or four different grocery bills to my work credit card because it is the exact same color and the exact same company as my stinking debit card. And so I grab them. I actually went to the links after it happened a third time. And luckily my business, I've caught it. You know, I mean, I was very open about it. And, and so they understood, like I went to the point of putting a pink sticky note on the top, like around the top edge of the card. So I would know, Hey, that's a different card because I'm always in a hurry. I'm not thinking. And I'm just like, boom, my point is, did it cross my mind that, oh, hey, I already charged that there. I don't really want to pay that 150 bucks for those groceries back. Maybe I can just get away with it. Yeah, it did cross my mind because I think that's a normal thought. I, I think, and then when you cross that line and you do what Frank does and you choose deception and you choose theft, then you break down a wall and it is like any sin or any thing you could do in this nature it becomes easier the next time and so then the ball starts rolling and you just start getting good at being deceptive and like covering it up and you're testing boundaries and figuring out how far you can take it and that's what happened and that's why, and because of the success, no one cares to look at all, um, because that's all anybody wants. Like I have the result that I personally want to achieve out of this situation. So I don't need to know how we got to this point. I just like where we're at. Completely agree. I also think there's a level of inconvenience that is fought against when it comes to these types of things. And to go back to that conversation that Frank had, even at a small scale, there's a logistical inconvenience to have to reconcile that. It was only $20. It was only 69 cents. What does that matter in the grand scheme of things for a district that's making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year that's going to be needing to vote on a budget that is quantifiably huge compared to these couple of charges? And what happens is I think you get lazy and you start realizing it's just like it's a similar way to think about when you hand out cash, when you pay for something with cash as opposed to swiping your credit card, psychologically, there's something different that happens when you pay for something with a card versus when you pay for it with cash. And I think some of that probably existed in these transactions. What I also thought was interesting, Aaron, to answer the question is that I don't know that there was accountability that there was necessarily a need for it or a desire to have it. Something that I pulled away from the story, and I, I could be wrong, so correct me if I am, but it didn't appear that Frank and Pam were in this together. Like I, felt, I did I didn't get that sense either. I, I didn't I didn't see that either. So I think that when he found out that she had done this, I don't think it surprised him because he was doing it too. But as you mentioned earlier, their motives were completely different. And I think of the two, Frank was doing things out of a genuine, out of a kind of a multifaceted reason. One was because he felt justified. Another is because it was convenient. And still another was that he knew that in the grand scheme of things, he had an influence on the people that he was working with and for, the students, the other teachers, that I think justified his actions. And in the end, Frank believes that what he was doing wasn't wrong, as we had said before, that there's this, it was kind of a shocking, but almost like a, you go, man, conversation that he has with that parent near the end of the movie, this kind of a bookended conversation where she is trying to allow him she's trying to convince him to let her kid go into this accelerated reading program and he can't say the word accelerate and he just goes off like it's a fantastic moment that i think hugh jackman performs here <laughs> and the mom's reaction is completely just <laughs> hilarious and completely right she's like let's go son but in that conversation he makes the argument that 
teachers, administrators, school professionals get taken and taken and taken and taken. They are the people that parents go to to get the problem solved. And what happens at the end of the day? They get nothing for it. They are the people that are used and abused and are blamed for everything but get credit for nothing. I think that was a quote that the actual Frank Tassone said in the article. And that particular scene really, really amplifies that attitude. And in that moment, I was thinking about Don Shanahan and about the fact that he is a champion for all things teacher-related. Recently, he had posted a, a article about the city of Chicago, one of the districts, was looking for uh, ways in which to reintegrate schools and doing all these different things. And his comment was, just goes to show you that anybody but teachers know nothing about what needs to be done for these students. We're already doing a great job as teachers because that's what we do. At least give us the chance to give our input. And I, I love having him part of this community because he continuously reminds me that teachers have a thankless job and that they need to be thanked more financially, verbally, emotionally, whatever. And I think that Frank has a point. And the byproduct of that was probably his way of justifying all the decisions that he made, both in making sure that he knew which students and which teachers were taking certain classes and where they were going to college and what teachers were teaching what, but also why he needed to have $30,000 worth of dry cleaning done to all these different suits. There's this duplicity that exists with him where he's saying, not that I need this to have that, but independently, I need this and I need this. And even though they're not related, they're both together satisfying what I need. So to me, I think that was a moment of empathy that I had for him because at some point you have a breaking point. And to me, I think that was his. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that scene up because I actually, that was an almost connecting point as well. And I really, really love how that conversation goes down and what he specifically says in the movie. He says, do you remember the teachers who sat with you, who held you by the hand, who taught you to add and subtract, who, or who showed you Gatsby and Salinger for the first time, Mockingbird even, which is, by the way, adapted and also in our current May donor pick poll, but I digress. Do their names escape you? Are their faces a blur? You might forget, but we don't. We never forget, ever. And you're so right. Like, my ex-wife is a teacher, and I am very ingrained in this because of that. My one of my best friends who's local is also a middle school teacher. Like I have a lot of friends that are in this profession and this is like something that I feel is completely true. Um, and it's, it's partially something you accept when that nature is by the nature of that job. And so be it like, that's okay. Right. But I had empathy for him in that moment too. And it was a, it's a great scene because I feel like I'm about to get Frank the villain, Patrick. I feel like he's really about to go over that line, right? And we're going to see a real, quote unquote, real Frank that doesn't care about people. And through his absolute mass frustration, he still teaches. Like ultimately he teaches. He's kind of a, crazy person in that moment which is what gets her upset but like what happens he tells a story and the kid learns to say the word accelerated and frank is proud of him like that's what it's about for frank and so it's it's tragic in a sense like that he went down this route because part of me thinks dude this is a really strong educator and this is a guy who truly could have done a lot of good for his school district and for the people that he served as a teacher without this happening. Like he doesn't need all of this. He is good on his own. Does that make sense? Like he could have done it. And so I, I just think I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's easy to get lost in selfishness, mm -hmm. honestly. And 
it this kind of ties into like what happens with Frank at the end of the movie. Because when you think you're what you're doing is not hurting anyone else, and frankly, it again with the pun, but like on some level, it's not hurting anyone else, kind of. It is, but it isn't like directly. You can easily justify the theft, is my point. It's just theft. Like everybody in the school is still thri- uh, thriving. They have what they need to be successful and go on and start wonderful careers. And so you believe that you're doing good for those people. And the fact that you're benefiting, like, I think what you're getting at, like, it's just, it's a natural benefit of that. And, and in some ways it's a natural cost. It's an upkeep, right? Him and his suits is an upkeep because that's something he needs to do to be who he is, which keeps this thing flowing. Um, and, and I just love it because he identifies that too early in the movie. And I think it bookends with the the system with Chad where he tells the lady about how Chad's a smart kid with the world ahead of him. And it's our job to get him on a runway. That's a beautiful, true statement. Right. And he tells Rachel, which damns him. Ultimately, he says, it's only a puff piece. If you let it be a puff piece, a real journalist can turn any assignment into a story. So, He's not even constantly thinking about his deception and how to cover it up. He is trying to be a good educator and help her learn how to be a journalist that is going to be successful in life. And it just happens to undo him because he's the target and he doesn't realize it at the moment. Uh, and, and of course, later on, he does definitely try to, you know, persuade her. But like he wants to teach kids and see them succeed. That is never ever in doubt and so it makes it very sad when you see that sociopathic nature come through that he just he doesn't get it (laughs) you're you're exactly right in that you look at that one side of his sociopathic nature and you want that for him like you want him to succeed to go back to the jordan documentary for a minute something that i was thinking about watching tonight with krisha was jordan is one person perceptively to a lot of people want to be like Mike, but you watch the documentary and you see him trash talk and foul mouth here and there. And he was a guy who ultimately just wanted to be a great basketball player. And oftentimes when you look at the teams that he was on, I don't mean to make this about the documentary, but it ties into to Frank's story. Not that Jordan's a sociopath, but that, you look at both of these characters and you see them as being a necessary evil for the greater good in that Michael Jordan put butts in the seats in stadiums and arenas that were not in the city of Chicago. He sold tickets in arenas where clubs were having losing records and yet they were filling out the state filling out the arena because it was Michael Jordan. He was given special privileges. He had his own shoe line, something unprecedented for a basketball player at the time. So the the league and the culture around him granted him that kind of permission, granted him that kind of life. And I think in a lot of ways, the district here, the city of Roslyn, the district of Roslyn, knowing or not knowing, gave Frank permission to have that kind of life. You could say because he deserved it, but I think it's probably because he earned it. And there was, early on with the school board, there was a kind of a a conflict of like, oh gosh, what's this going to mean for us? And by the end of the movie, what we see is Frank really did do a good job. He didn't do just a good job. He did a great job, Aaron. He changed things. He and Pam both, I mean, him probably more than her, but she was an icon. She was a staple of that school district for 30 plus years, 20 plus years. I can't remember how long these guys made an impact. And the question wasn't about what did they deserve? It was about, should we allow this kind of behavior knowing that for us, the bigger thing was actually a good thing. And it raises that question. Who did it really hurt? Well, financially, we know that's one level of that. But we also know that when it comes to ethics, there there are layers of right and wrong. There are levels of right and wrong. 
it could have been wrong on one level, but you can easily justify it on another. That might be a sociopathic way of looking at it. But at the end of the day, we all do that. We all think, hmm, you know what? I shouldn't go over the speed limit because the speed limit is the law. But we do it all the time. Why? Because we either think we need to get someplace faster or because we think that there's a unwritten rule with the cops that say you can go no more than nine miles over the speed limit without getting pulled over. We have all these things that go through our head when it comes to these little things. And I think Frank saw the embezzlement not as that. You made a great point earlier by saying he's not consciously thinking about his deception. I think he just sees it as a thread in his life of being who he is because he wants to educate first and foremost. And I think there was genuine regret not that he got caught, but because he couldn't do that anymore. And so some of what he experiences, I think, at that very last scene was maybe personal redemption for him, even though it wasn't real. But I think ultimately he wanted his students to succeed and he wanted to be successful in being the guy that saw this kind of disciple making effect of student after student after student be successful. And for him, I think Kyle was part of that, that he was sad that Kyle didn't make a name for himself, but I think he was sad that he felt like he failed him in some way. And so maybe that influenced that relationship. That conversation in the car, I think, adds some reality to the fact that he said, look, there's $30,000 on the top, in the top dresser drawer. You can make it last all year. And you could feel him saying, I don't want you to get involved in this. I want to take care of you. And so after working through all that and seeing it, I can see how his relationship with Kyle felt a lot more authentic, even though it was the one in the shadows versus his relationship with his domestic partner that felt everything but real. Like he was going through the motions, that scene where they are um, having having dinner and he's got a lot on his mind. His partner says, it's the salmon. Didn't I, I ruined the salmon. And he, he goes, no, it was fine. And he ends up kind of making conversation about it, but we know what's going on with him, that he has a lot going on in his head. So I think that at the end of the day, there was justification in his head and whether it was right or wrong, I think leaves a great sense of ambiguity and it makes for a great conversation. Well, Aaron, you mentioned a number of almost connecting points. Why don't we find out what your actual winner was for, for this movie? Well, they were all pretty small in scope. This is a shorter movie, and there's not like humongous like emotional themes happening really throughout. But the one that kind of resonated with me, I guess on a personal level, was Rachel, the student, and her dad, who's in the movie for like five seconds. So it's interesting that he's in my connecting point. Eating dinner and watching TV, and this is her trying to decide what she's going to do. Is she going to bury the story or is she going to go forward and publish that's it's the classic moment in all of our great journalism films usually it's like an oscar-winning mark ruffalo speech or something and instead it's like a quiet moment of the two of them and she asks him we we've had once or twice like i mean literal like throwaway lines up to this point kind of they're not throwaway but they're just very subtle about something happened to her dad, like he lost his job. And so she, we find out what that is. And she asks him, she says, you, know, you basically, he was accused of insider training and she asks him if he knew. And he affirms his innocence to her. And he says, no, I was not. I wasn't part of it. And then he says the most important part of this. He says, but the people that were, were my close friends, my close coworkers, I knew their families, I knew their kids, and so I didn't say anything, even though I could have. And that's something I live with. And I love how quiet this scene is and how unflashy it is. That's all he says, man. It's like two sentences, and then and that's something I live with. And you just get a quick shot of her face as she thinks about it, and then the next thing you know, we see the fallout that she has published. And I love it because that's how it really happens. <laughs> like music doesn't play in the background and trumpets don't go off and you get to make this huge, big cha life changing decision. And you know, it's going to be the effect that it's going to have, right? Like 
you don't actually know all that before it takes place. It's not that big. It is big enough that she's asking these questions. But her dad gets to be honest with her. She gets to feel that, gets to feel connection to him and, and feel like he's part of helping her make this decision. His trust in her to believe that he's just going to give her a piece of advice, not saying do or don't, but just giving his own life story and letting and, and trusting that she's going to make the right decision for her. And then, of course, it inspires her to be honest and do it. And it rolls into a scene that is very strong as well, which is Frank walking into the school, finding out that she's published, right? And everyone's staring at him and reading this paper, which is how we learn that she decided to go through with it. And, and I think those Tana, those two tied together. I just, I love the reveal from a filmmaking standpoint. Like it's just a really great way to do it. And the way that people are looking at Frank and he's trying to process and understand compared to how he walks into the, the office early in the movie. And then that emotional part of just her getting her dad's advice and the truth from him about his own sorted past, inspiring her to be honest. And then this is what happens when a junior in high school or whatever she is publishes a freaking story in her paper and the largest embezzlement in school history gets discovered. It's a great scene, a very quiet one, and one that I think speaks a lot about their relationship because you're right, he doesn't get a lot of screen time. In fact, early on, I thought he was going to kind of be somewhat of a throwaway character, but there's a great moment where his entrance into the story happens when he sees all these papers on the floor. He's like, what are you doing? And she goes, research. And then the next thing you see is him calling on these businesses, and then we start getting the story moving forward at a little bit more accelerated rate. For me, my connecting point happens a little bit early on and it ties a little bit into my one word takeaway of influence. And it's just after Pam gets caught or get arrested for her embezzlement. Frank goes to the auditor and he asks for concrete numbers. And you can tell that he's working his magic, I think is what she says. And the auditor says, right now, all I can find concretely is maybe 250000 He goes, well, that's our number. And I'm like, wow, that's a large number. Not knowing how much total <laughs> later on, that surprised, that didn't surprise. I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. Uh, but when you compare it to like $5 million that she actually did, it was just crazy. But he leaves the office and he goes into the boardroom where, where Bob and, and the board members, I guess, are talking. And he says, here's what we're going to do. She's, it's the numbers 250,000. And of course they are like, oh my gosh. And Bob's ready to just throw the book at her. He's like, look, we need to throw her out. This is not happening. We can't do this. And Frank, the way in which he delivers this is just masterful. He essentially convinces this group of people that it would be better if we just let this go away quietly, and he doesn't give the terms in this scene, because of the good of the district, he says, if this thing got out, this is going to be what happens. And what if this happened? And what if, and he puts it, he doesn't make the decision, Aaron, he puts it on them, but he puts it in a way where they start feeling like, you know what? He's right. This is something that we can live with. And if we make the terms fit, we can feel justified and we can just let this go away quietly. And I think that's the first moment looking back on the movie where we get that sociopathic dichotomy of a guy who wants to see the district actually succeed. He doesn't want to see it blemished, but he also knows that if they're going to tie back this embezzlement to her, they're definitely going to tie it back to him because the paper trail is not that separate. And so when you watch that and you see how he crafts that message, how he is able to deliver it in a quiet, calm way, it's kind of accentuated two scenes later where he, I think it's either that scene or the scene just after where they go into Pam's office and tell her what she's needing to do. You see him kind of sigh and you see everybody around him just kind of pat him on the back and say, great job, Frank. Great job. 
And I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Did you just do that? I mean, he is a chess master. And of course, seeing everything play out afterwards, it just makes that scene for me that much more impactful because it tells me that he knew exactly what he was doing from the start. But what I didn't know was the multi-level motivation that went along with that. So for me, that scene stood out uh, as, as my connecting point. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. With a new month comes a new round of voting for this month's donor pick. And for May, as you mentioned earlier, we are looking at book-to-movie adaptations, To Kill a Mockingbird being one of those selections out of the five that our patrons will be able to vote on. If you want to be a part of that action and get yourself some extra goodies for supporting us, you can check out all of that at patreon.com slash film. Next week, we're actually taking a slight detour in our schedule and covering Mark Webb's The Amazing Spider-Man, starring my favorite Spidey, Andrew Garfield, and of course, the perfect Gwen Stacy, Emma Stone. Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, my friend, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.